Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. We're off the bottom, but still deep in the well. That's the assessment from Dr. Duncan Sinclair and economist Don Drummond, the Queen's University Emeritus Professor of Physiology and the Adjunct Professor of the School of Policy Studies, tell me it's impossible to predict the start date for the recovery and that COVID-19 has highlighted pre-existing conditions of a policy nature. The solution? Spend money on healthy people to keep them healthy. Well, I'm kind of relieved of late to watch the commentary from economists and policymakers because when I first made the expression about the the economy is going to turn out worse than people are anticipating, I was shocked at the degree where people were severing what was going on in the economy with what was going on with the virus and the whole health scene. It was like they were isolated events and people were anticipating that we get to some certain day and the economy starts to recover and it's a linear path back to the pre-pandemic levels. And I said, you got to listen to the epidemiologists and the experts in the infectious disease. That is not the way that this virus has been playing out anywhere else in the world, the places where it started earlier in Canada. And that's not the way pandemics have played out in history. They don't just disappear some night. They don't just gradually fade away. They tend to come back in ripples and they can come back in second waves. And the first wave could last a lot longer than it did before. And opening will be compromised. And so the good news is that the economy has demonstrated quite a bit of resilience. We have seen a lot of jobs come back, 40% of them come back. We saw retail trade come back very strongly in May, anticipation it came back fairly strongly in June. So this is all good, but we still got large pockets of the pocket uh, of the economy that are still closed down and are gonna be difficult to open. The other thing that has been refreshing I have never seen so many people talk about schooling and childcare in an economic context before. People finally get it when you're living in an era where many households have two working adults, that schooling and childcare has a very strong economic component to it. And if those cannot open safely, that a large percentage of the population will not be returning to the workforce, at least not returning in a fairly fulsome fashion. And, and those are big challenges everywhere in Canada. So hence, uh, we're, we're in the well, maybe not at the bottom of it, but we're still down there below the surface. The depth of that well is also determined in large part by the degree, as Don said, of safety. And so long as the degree of uncertainty persists about the extent to which this, bod- this virus affects naive human beings, uh, that uh, the depth, the overall depth of the well will remain quite uncertain. And we uh, don't know a lot, really, frankly, about this virus. And uh, uh, I was just reading this morning about uh, uh, the effects that the virus seems to have on the neuro, uh, neurological foundation of our lives. And uh, that w- that's a pretty scary proposition, uh, particularly for young people. So uh, I think not only is the uncertainty economic, but it also has to do with the uncertainties related to this particular virus. Well, then what of the economic forecasts I'm seeing that claim to be able to predict a start date for the recovery with a clear path back to pre-pandemic life? How is that even possible? You know, this is all so reminiscent for me of the financial crises going back to 2008. When you think about economists and their economic models, 
the entire financial sector and almost all the economic models of that period just 12 years ago were represented by interest rates and the exchange rate. And neither one of those variables caused the financial crisis and the ensuing recession. So the models were essentially useless and the people who are using them to make predictions were using them from false pretenses. It was financial imbalances and those were not represented in any of the models. And I think we have the same thing here. When this hit and took these analysts by surprise, and I would say a lot of investors as, as well with that, that initially fairly ro rosy view that this was gonna pass fairly quickly, and we get back to pre-pandemic levels uh, in a blink of an eye, didn't factor in the health side and didn't look at previous experiences, didn't tend to associate or even follow what was being said by the so-called health experts. And I've been saying for a long time, a single scenario forecast is about as useless a piece of paper as you could possibly generate. There are so much uncertainty in the health, in the interactions from the health to the economy. You have to be thinking in terms of scenarios. And there's another element where I do take some relief. So we saw the Bank of Canada, although they are extraordinarily vague, almost to the point of being useless, they talk about two all less favorable scenarios relative to their central one. In the economic and fiscal snapshot that Minister Murnau gave, they talk about alternative scenarios. Organization for Economic Cooperation Development is dealing in scenarios, and those scenarios, all of them have at least one outlook that features the first wave staying longer, and they typically have a second alternative in which there's a second wave, and obviously the economies do quite badly about that. And you, know, you don't, in economics and forecasts, typically get the advantage of real-time observations, but you look at places like California that had opened up to a fairly large extent and is now closing down to a fairly large extent. That kind of scenario has to focus in to your outlook of the, hopefully that wouldn't happen. We seem to be doing well here, but we know we're, we're not just all interconnected economically and through trade. We're all interconnected through health as well. And that's becoming quite clear right now. We can't isolate ourselves for what's going on elsewhere. Dr. COVID-19's highlighted pre-existing problems with the fundamental policies and structure of Canada's healthcare system. What do you see as the key problem? The key problem, frankly, is that our so-called health system does not have a governance. And the deficiency that is created by that is that it does not have a clear objective of what would be the result if you had an ideal so-called health system. The goal is not clearly articulated. I, it would be simple for me. I would say the goal of the health system is to optimize the health of the Canadian population and uh, make it uh, as close to the best in the world as can be done given our capacity to uh, finance it and staff it and do all of those things. Uh, but we don't have a, a governance of the system. In fact, I. Uh, I would argue we do not really have a system uh, by the ordinary dictionary definition whereby a system really is a number of components that are smoothly coordinated one with the other in order to produce uh, optimally, uh, with optimum efficiency and effectiveness, a desired outcome. And uh, frankly, the description of our 
so-called system as a field of silos barely connected to one another uh, is uh, is very apt. And that that's a major issue. Uh, and I think probably the largest issue. Second is that we don't have common information that uh, would is derived from uh, the procedures and practices and all of those things that are provided by the prov providers of health care so that we can uh, be aware of uh, what is being provided to uh, restore to health uh, those who are ill, because that's what we're really doing. We're, uh, our so-called health system is not. It's an illness care, injury care system, and we don't really have any data uh, that's worth a hoot to assess uh, whether or not it's actually producing the result that we would like to see optimally and uh, doing so efficiently. So uh, the absence of a goal and the absence of shared information of how we're proceeding to it are two big problems. And the, the last one, it, uh, and it's not necessarily last, we don't measure health. We measure the absence of disease in large measure uh, and uh, uh, think that we are really doing health. So those are the three big issues that I see affecting our so-called health system. I'll just pick up where Duncan left off and I guess I'll draw on my experience of now 10, almost 10 years ago when I did the Commission on the Reform of Public Services in Ontario and Needless to say, I spent most of my time on the health sector because it's by far the biggest budget item. And, and at that time, it was the fastest growing. And I guess I also draw my background in economics, much of it based upon incentives. And I, I, I find public policies go off the rails for one common factor. And it's almost always that one common factor. They either have the wrong objective or if they do have an objective, it, it's very unclear. And I, I think that's the basic root of what we're dealing here. First of all, we have the wrong objective. Uh, the objective is health care. We always and almost everywhere call it health care. We don't call it health. I think the objective should be to promote health. And this misspecification of the primary objective runs through the entire, as Duncan would say, so-called system. And you just take as an example the traditional form of composition, composition for physicians, fee-for-service. Well, fee-for-service is based upon doing services. You get paid by doing a service. You don't get paid by promoting somebody's health. In fact, if you, I don't think any doctor would look at that that way. They wouldn't be in the field if they did. But if you looked at a healthy person and you looked at the prospect of keeping them healthy, that would not be a very lucrative client to have because they wouldn't be visiting you very often. And so we go back to the 1950s and 1960s where these silos we have were created and just as one example the 65 plus population in those days was seven and a half percent of our population we didn't deal with people that had a lot of morbidities and comorbidities we didn't deal with trying to have people live in a as reasonably healthy way with these conditions now 17% of our population seniors is going to go to 25% and not the distant future. It's an entirely different country. 
but it's basically dealing with that primary care that was set up to deal with that young population that fixed them up after something went wrong and was very good at uh, fixing broken legs and the like, but that's not the current conditions, but we have not specified the objective properly. We don't even measure it. Um, I'm very fond of the Institute, the Canada Institute for Health Information, but if you look at almost everything they do, it is measuring health care interventions and how much we spend on them. There's precious little attention to paid in the health. And in fact, even if you wanted to determine the status of health of Canadians and compare it to other countries, there's very few measures you can pick. We basically have our longevity, or at best we have a health-adjusted longevity. But there's so many aspects to health relative that rather than just a simple measure of longevity, but we don't look at that, we don't track at it, and we don't tend to promote that. Well, how do you sell spending money on healthy people to keep them healthy when so much of the conversation about healthcare in this country is focused on cost? You pointed out healthcare has traditionally been the biggest and the fastest growing cost at the federal level. How can we cut costs when the cost of fighting a pandemic will extend beyond the flattening of the curve? If the cost cutting were to be managed by the people who were provided incentive to keep people healthy, we would uh, be able to cut considerably amount, a considerable amount of cost. But currently, the cost-cutting incentive is located primarily with governments and not with the people who actually incur the cost. Uh, that uh, uh, choosing wisely movement in Canada and the United States is an example where uh, it's estimated that a significant component, a significant number of those procedures that are paid for on the fee-for-service system <clears throat> actually have no very little or no beneficial outcome and people get paid for it. Uh, so the incentive really is to do them. Uh, if in fact uh, governments were to, let's take Ontario for example, create Ontario health teams and give to those teams uh, the uh, amount of money that uh, that could be ca calculated on a capitation basis, develop measures of health, and then uh, assess the effectiveness of those teams in optimizing health. I think over a course of a relatively small number of years, uh, we would find out that uh, with those incentives, those teams would not be doing many of those procedures that have no beneficial outcome. Nor, nor prescribing many of the tests that, in fact, uh, constitute now major expense, but add very little, uh, if anything, to the diagnosis of, uh, of conditions. So uh, other countries with whom we can be readily compared uh, from an economic point of view and from a health status point of view, um, achieve uh, their, the health status of their population at much less expenditure than do we. Michael, this is something I've uh, labored over all my career involved in public policy. The, the root of so many problems in public policy is a short-term time horizon from a political perspective, depending on what level of government you're in. 
you've got an election cycle that's three, four, five years, and you tend to want to address problems or at least have people believe you've addressed the problems within that time period. But some things are of a longer nature than that. And to promote the health of the population, first of all, it would take a while to, to pull off that engineering redesign and it might take even longer to show very tangible results of that. And so it doesn't stack up as popular as cutting the waiting time, for example, in some certain procedure. A litmus test for this and, and something that's going to test all those dynamics will be these numerous long-term care reviews that are under right now. They will focus on the problems of yesterday and today, and we know what they're going to say. They need better physical facilities. They need to be run in a more sanitary fashion. They need more workers, more qualified workers. They need to be paid more. We know that because the countless reviews that already have done have all said that. What they should be addressing is this literal tsunami coming of people in the future. They're going to need long-term care facilities if we continue under current conventions. We know the percentage of people at each age cohort that tend to go into long-term care. And we know it's the population not only going into the senior ranks, but within the senior ranks going into the upper age cohorts, that this is just going to take off. Um, it's all very predictable, but nothing's been doing about it. And you take a province like Ontario, we're talking about building 15,000 beds. This is literally rounding error on the demand that's going to come. And so you have to look at, well, something has to be done to break the traditional protocols and conventions. That has to be finding ways of enabling people to remain in their home or some type of collective uh, residential situation longer than they do right now. And that means providing the services on those sites as opposed to going from a binary option, you stay independent of your house until day X, and then you go into a long-term care facility. Uh, as the bean counter, that's really expensive, but more importantly, that's not where people want to be. They, they want to age so-called in place or at least in the community where they've come from before, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can give people what they want and it can be done at a lower cost, but watch these reviews. I don't think that they'll focus on that. I don't think they'll be referring to the future. And so we will walk into you know, 2031, all of our baby boomers uh, will have brought into that 65 plus and the uh, the ones in the earlier phase will be getting over 80 and we're going to run into a crisis and it's going to be a crisis that's been very clear to see for 50 or 60 years, but it's going to be always outside our political cycle. So we won't necessarily have it addressed. With that in mind, it, it seems like we need to address the issue of whether or not we actually have the right doctors with an aging demographic. Shouldn't healthcare reform also tackle the issue of the imbalance within the profession? The education of physicians, well, the education of really all health professionals uh, is a fairly lengthy process, uh, but physicians especially. And uh, the imbalances now uh, among, the, among physicians who in the various specialties uh, is um, uh, just almost legendary. And uh, it is really going to take a very long time to correct that. So um, I, I frankly think within a reasonable timeline, the reasonability of that being what's politically acceptable, 
um, that uh, the generalist physician, well, physicians are going to have to re-become more generalized so that all of them will be able to deal with uh, older people, vulnerable people, uh, because we just do not have the time to educate a new crop of people who have greater expertise than uh, currently the case uh, to deal with elderly people. And Michael, just to put some numbers on that, in all of Canada, we only have 304 geriatricians at the moment. We only have 470 rheumatologists. We could spend a long time musing how in the world we got into such a situation. How could that be allowed to happen? But as Duncan said, there's not much you can do about it right now. Even worse, the inflow into gerontology is almost zero. So then that's not going to be corrected. So as Duncan says, if you're in family medicine, 25% of your clientele is going to be seniors, as seniors tend to have heavier healthcare needs than the rest of the population. More than 25, a third, maybe even half of the time you spend is going to deal with seniors. So everybody, in a sense, is going to be called some fashion, in some fashion a gerontologist. The few specialists we have will be advisors to them. We'll have to change the model. There's really nothing we can do having let those imbalances become so ingrained. What, though, of the, the financial side of, of reform? If the 2009 Keelan Pepin Senate report broke down the determinants of health as 50% socioeconomic, isn't half the solution to the problem of creating policy economic-oriented, not health-centric? Currently, we consider health care to be separate from uh, other components, uh, uh, others of the social determinants of health, so-called. A classic example is uh, Ontario, for example, that recently split off long-term care from the Ministry of Health. Uh, personally, I don't. I think that would be a, a retrograde decision because we're... Uh, making greater separation between one health determinant and another health determinant. But uh, bringing them together, uh, uh, I, I give full marks to uh, the Senate on that report. Uh, but unfortunately, after its uh, publication, people read it, people seemed to understand it, and then it went back on the dusty shelf so far as governments were concerned. Uh, in that uh, we continue to consider health care not to be related, as we said earlier, to health. Because if uh, we, I, I think we need a, a government's need and governments need to lead a public view that health is a larger um, objective than is the repair of illness and injury that we have been concentrating on for all these years. Medicare, uh, of which we are so proud, excludes uh, consideration of most of the determinants of health other than the provision of the repair service. Well, I think another feature of public policy is just as the bits and pieces of the so-called healthcare system are basically collections of silos, so is government policy. So you, you will have a Ministry of Health uh, over in one building, you'll have a Ministry of Education and another, and a Ministry of Social Services. They don't view themselves as working to common cause, they're very much linked. 
I've often said that if my job was to take a dollar out of healthcare for the year 2035, I would do that by investing in a vulnerable young person today because we know with the social economic conditions that that person is going to confront without some support that they are going to end up being a major consumer, if we could put it that way, of healthcare that's fairly predictable. And that may be improving their education background. It may be adding to their social services. It may have absolutely nothing to do with the traditional role of the Ministry of Health, but no one will make those links. Uh, if you were concerned about the health, you would do much more for Indigenous people in Canada. They have, on average, by far the worst health conditions. And also, by the way, not by accident, uh, as causation, by far the worst social economic condition. And things are done, but never enough. And, and we rarely see that link between the social economic conditions and the health outcomes they're treated as somehow they're coming in separately. So I think everybody did read reports like the Senate report. They kind of get it, but they don't act from a policy perspective that that is what drives them. So when the bill comes to you, if you're predicting that post-pandemic healthcare spending of 5.5% per annum will eclipse the longer-term nominal GDP growth rate of 3.5%, why wouldn't tax increases be the solution to pay this healthcare bill? My prediction is that we will not go back and see a sustained period of healthcare spending growing quite rapidly because I think um, not next year, maybe not even the year after that, because I think the economy will still be vulnerable. We will see another round of fiscal austerity, somewhat similar to the one we saw in Canada beginning in 2011, and they will suppress healthcare budgets. My great fear as that they will do it in an inefficient and ineffective way. It'll be focused on the bottom line of spending. And, and recall that what seems like an impressive turndown of the rate of growth of health spending as of 2011 largely initially came by starving capital, which accomplished nothing other than creating capacity constraints down the road. And we had, for example, in Ontario, unilaterally and arbitrarily cut physicians' pay, which subsequently got restored to an arbitration award. And uh, Alberta doesn't seem to have learned anything from that lesson. They're still trying to do the same thing. So I think we'll first get an attempt at restraint, and that'll be reminiscent also of the experience of the late 1990s, where there was a perception, I say it's perception because we didn't measure it very well, that that was causing increases in wait time. And of course, governments not only abandoned the restraint after a few years, but went back to a period of very rapid health care. So I think, unfortunately, there'll be a cycle and we'll rein it in before we go it out. Why not tax? Well, Canadians actually are taxed pretty heavily right now. So the political aspect and economic aspect comes into it. I think it would be very hard to use our main tax instrument, personal income tax, because most Canadians face marginal, uh, the tax on the last dollar they earn of at least 50%. Everybody knows the high income earners do that, but families who get the child benefit, for example, face very high marginal tax rates because of the tax back on those benefits. Seniors, uh, if they're in the range of the guaranteed income supplement, already face very high marginal tax rates. Hard to rely upon that instrument. With the need to be internationally competitive, it's hard to rely on our corporate income tax. We had a big advantage over the U.S., but by blowing a trillion dollars a year on their so-called tax reform, uh, they actually have a lower rate in many states now than we do in Canada. So 
That's hard to do. So really all we have is a useful instrument on the tax right right now would, would be the GST, uh, harmonized sales tax, or the carbon tax. Our carbon tax probably paralyzed into the moment until we get the Supreme Court decision whether the federal government can levy that in provincial jurisdictions. Uh, and, and certainly there's room there, the least economically damaging. Uh, we have very low value-added taxes relative to many of the European countries. We could use that more. But, you know, the public wants more and better health care. They don't like the wait times. They want the access. They want the good care. But they also don't want to pay higher taxes. So we get back into the political realm of uh, which one, you're, which one uh, the politicians want to deliver. It's uh, but my feeling is we will not have a rational solution of which we will say to the public, yes, you can have more spending on health and you're going to pay more taxes. I think we'll first see this period of, uh, of restraint applied and it will cause problems and that will probably break it. We'll have a mini crisis coming up again as we have had at the end of the 1990s and as I would argue that we were creating uh, post-2011. Doctor, you suggest that one of the lasting effects of COVID-19 may be that public health gets the prominence it deserves. What should that prominence look like? It should be a, a, a persistent memory of how important the approach of public health is to the prevention of the deleterious effects of things like SARS-CoV-2 that we're suffering right now. We've been through this before, many times, back to the plague of, of Sparta many, many, many years ago. Pandemics are uh, very rarely uh, one-shot issues. They last for quite a long time, and they recur. So if, in fact, public health were to maintain the focus that we have now on public health, people mostly uh, appreciate how important public health issues or, although uh, uh, for those of you in Toronto, uh, crowding the, the beaches and and and, uh, and the bars in Toronto, uh, the, the patios anyway, uh, seem to have slid off the memory track right away. Anyway, uh, uh, we uh, public health, as with gerontology, is not. Uh, very popular among young people uh, who go into the health professions. Uh, what I would see as a tremendous benefit is that uh, that slacking off of the importance of public health during the inter-pandemic intervals, uh, if that could be repaired, we would have accomplished something really uh, very significant. Dr. Duncan Sinclair and Don Drummond, both of Queen's University. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, August 12th, managing a pension fund through a crisis with David Dennison, the former president and CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, Jim Leach, formerly of the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and Henri-Paul Rousseau, formerly of the case. That's Wednesday, August 12th. On August 18th, the Institute will host a webinar on the role of the housing market in sustaining Canada's financial stability. And on the 19th, globalization in a post-pandemic world. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.